I first want to begin by acknowledging that, uh, again, that our, we have many of our staff that are over in Guatemala right now, and uh, we're very fortunate to have a church staff that uh, feels comfortable with leaving, and uh, there's 15 of them in all, but particularly uh, Brother Pastor Brian and, and Janet and, uh, and all of those that uh, went, uh, Joby and Will. Uh, we're very fortunate and, and we are experiencing a time where a lot of us doesn't, where we may not realize it or not, we're experiencing a time in our church of, of peace and harmony. And until you've been through some of those storms in a church, you don't really value that too much. But there is, there is a spirit of unity and uh, we know that uh, out of turmoil a lot of times comes revolution, but out of peace and harmony comes a revival. And so we have those things in place in our church that uh, is, is very much part of that prayer. And uh, we are in that place where there is peace and harmony. And, uh, and, and I, I always encourage folks to remember your, your pastor and your staff. A pastor who loves its congregation, always remember them each day on your bended knee. This morning I might pose a question to begin with of why are you here? For some of you, or for many of you, it may be out of some obligation, maybe to God, maybe an obligation to your parents, maybe some kind of public expectation in some form of need. But I'll speak today of an obedience that calls us to answer the deeper questions of our hope and glory. And it's my, it's my desire that, that we would all search for that time and, and search for that obedience that God desires. This message today will come from 1 Kings. And 1 Kings covers just over a hundred years from the end of King David's reign through the divided kingdom and uh, all the way down to about 853 B.C. But this message comes from a point in time almost 3,000 years ago. But there's still so many lessons that we can learn from those prophets of Israel and lessons that are just as significant in the lives of the people in the church today. So as we look at this, and, and we, we want to, to look at these, uh, these words as, as uh, you know, a time of, of you know, what our obedience to God is and how we may recognize that purpose of what we are be to obedient to God about. But before I begin with the focal passages about Elijah, I want to share with you some of those things, those events that led up to a time in Elijah's life wherein he was asked that all-important question of, why are you here? And, and the events that lead to Elijah's more profound examination of his obedient faith. So as we begin, I, I start with a summary story out of, out of uh, in 1 Kings around the 16th and 17th chapter, which is that around 874 B.C., a man named Ahab became king of Israel. And at this time, the kingdom was divided into the north and the south. Israel in the north was composed of 12 tribes, Judah in the south composed of two tribes. Ahab was the eighth king of Israel. And a poor king he was. He married a woman named Jezebel. And she got, uh, she got Ahab to worshiping these false gods, these, these gods of Baal. And so he set up an altar to Baal and he set up a pole to Asher, the, uh, a goddess. And so he began to worship those things and was drawn away. And again, he did more to provoke the Lord than any king had before him. But Elijah the prophet was sent to confront, not to comfort. 
And so Elijah the prophet of Israel was sent to Ahab to pronounce a drought. And during that time, only by Elijah's word would there be rain or would there be no rain. The Lord sent him away during that time and he sent him away to a place where the ravens fed him meat and bread in the morning and meat and bread in the afternoon as he drank from a brook. Elijah was gone for some period of time and after approximately three years, which time Jezebel was killing all the prophets of God that she could get her hands on. So when Elijah returns, he returns with rain, but he returns with so much more as well. And when he comes back, he delivers a rebuke to Ahab and he says, Gather your 450 prophets of Baal and your 400 prophets of Asherah and meet me at Mount Carmel. And that is the place where, by faith, Elijah tells him, says, bring two bulls. Because you're going you're gonna to sacrifice one for your so-called God, and I'm going to sacrifice one. And so by faith, he takes, and, 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 the, and those prophets of Baal, they take, their, they take their sacrifice, their bull, and they prepare their altar and their wood, and they put the sacrifice on it. And then they prayed to their God. From morning till past noon, they danced and they prayed. Elijah had a little fun along the way because there wasn't nothing going on. There wasn't nothing happening. And Elijah says, well, maybe you need to dance harder. Maybe you need to pray louder and shout a little louder. Maybe, you're, maybe your God is, is away. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's asleep. He's not answering. And so they did. They danced harder. They prayed louder and absolutely nothing happened. They even cut themselves so that their own blood would flow on their sacrifice and nothing happened. So then it was Elijah's turn because again, the whole point of this was that Elijah would turn the hearts of Israel back to God. So by faith, he takes and he builds an altar out of 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And upon that, he places the wood and he places the sacrifice. And then he prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he says, Lord, accept this sacrifice that their hearts may be turned back to you. The Bible says that then, not later, but then fire from the Lord fell down and consumed the sacrifice, the altar, and even licked up the water that was in the trenches around him. Because see, not only was it just a sacrifice, but, but Elijah had went one step further and he tells him, he says, fill four jars of water and pour it on that sacrifice, not once, twice, but three times. So the water had flowed over the sacrifice. And when, when God accepted that, and it consumed that altar and that water, the people of Israel fell face down and worshipped the Lord of God. God of Israel. Well, Elijah says, seize those prophets of Baal, and there they were slaughtered in the Kishon Valley. Jezebel, of course, gets word. Ahab, he's scared. He runs back to Jezebel, who obviously is calling the shots here. Runs back to Jezebel and says, look what Elijah's done. He's killed all your prophets. Of course, Jezebel wants Elijah dead now. Elijah flees for his life. And during that, along that trip of 200 miles for 40 days and 40 nights, 
an angel feeds Elijah. Till he gets to this point where God led him to at Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, that place where Moses first saw the burning bush. And so here we're going to find Elijah in 1 Kings, if you will turn with me, to 1 Kings in chapter 19. If you don't have your Bible, the pew Bible there in front of you, it's on page 324 is where you'll find 1 Kings in chapter 19. And I will begin reading in verse 9. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word, Lord. We thank you so much for uh, a people who who are obedient to you that reach out and, and, and take these words and, Lord, just apply them to their heart. Lord, we pray you so much this morning for our, our staff and our members who have gone to Guatemala, Lord. We just pray that uh, wherever they are this very morning, that they are lifting up and praising your name and that a mighty work may be done through them. Lord, we love you. We praise you in your most precious name. Amen. How do we know what God wants? God's question to Elijah was, why are you here? And the word says that in, 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 in verse 4, it says that Elijah fled and, and, and he, was, he was wanting to die. He had had enough, but God's purpose for Elijah was not over because God knew that Elijah was indeed obedient. So he brought Elijah here to Mount Sinai. And you can read the words here and almost detect that God... Is, is ready for Elijah to stop wallowing in his self-pity and feel God's presence no longer in God's mighty ways, but in his quiet ways. So beginning in verse 11, we see God's power, and here we see the physical events in life. And according to God's word, these were real events, very much real. I believe it. I believe what God's word said about what happened, not only at Mount Carmel, but at Mount Horeb as well. And so, but this morning I, I want to take these, these things that he shows us, these mighty things, and I want to use them in terms of a metaphor so that we can understand our illustration today. And so the first thing that we see there in that verse 11, as he tells him to go out and stand by, he says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. You know, when I think of this and when I, as I studied this, I thought of how much the winds of change change in our life and how often we think of the things that happen around us in everyday life when the wind comes, you know, those, those, those changes that come. 
Well, some of that is, is part of those winds of change that, that move us out of our comfort zone. You know, God, God has ways of moving us. And sometimes change occurs and then we move out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it's a part of that aging process. As we come closer to that day of appointment, sometimes those winds of change come. As we look at our profession, sometimes we think we are so secure in what it is that we do in life. But winds of change come even in our professions, don't they? And then, of course, in our relationships with one another, there are always changes because we change as people. I think of the changes that occur in a church, in the life of a church. Sometimes those winds of change, what they do is they tear down what we call traditions not necessarily that which is grounded in God's Word, but just our regular traditions. But whatever it is, so many times these winds of change, they make us apprehensive in life. And they upset our ways and our relationships with people. But sometimes change just happens. And perhaps God isn't necessarily showing you through those change so much of anything. The next thing you see in verse 11 is the earthquake. These are earth-shaking events. These are those things that happen in life that have a tendency to be a little more, a little more critical to our lives. And that may be where death may occur, where the loss of a loved one, things that absolutely change the way that we do. And so many times, those, those earth-shaking events that occur, they upset, upset our balances. You know, we think we stand on solid ground, but we don't stand on solid ground because God shows us every now and then that, you know what, I can still move the earth. And it upsets our balances. And so many times we don't like that. They may be worldly events. So much has changed since 9-11 and, and those were truly earth-shaking events for our country they have upset our financial stability. And so the way that we go about and the way that we live henceforth is just a little bit different. Those events upset the balances we have in our life. And then you see the fires. You see the fire. It says, after the earthquake came a fire. When I think of fire, many times what I think of is, is that which, which God is doing in our lives Sometimes it's maybe through a song, maybe through one particular sermon. But unfortunately, those are not those fires that, that stay burning inside of us, but those passing fires. Sometimes those fires don't necessarily rekindle our spirit. They're just a flash in the pan. And we have all experienced those times in our life whenever we have experience some, some sort of, of uh, uh, rededication, some sort of time that we said, you know what, Lord, I need to get back in church. I need to get back into, into Sunday school. I need to get back to Bible study. You know, and, and, we, and we flare up for just a little while, and then that fire passes on. We often experience those things and through that hope. But one single event and not the soul-moving day-to-day closeness. You know, that is what we experience. But God wants that day-to-day -day closeness. These events 
that come as a fire often affect our faith. All of these points in life where we see God's hand and they are significant in their own right, they are great and mighty events, but it is not in these events that God appeared to Elijah. So we find it here in that latter part of 12 and 13. It says, After the earthquake came the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. That spiritual event, that gentle whisper, here is where our search for purpose is found through obedience. The obedience of studying of God's Word, that fervent prayer, that communion with God, those moments of silence except for God's voice in us through the Holy Spirit. We can't hear God talking to us when our priorities are out of focus. When we seek to answer God's question, what are you doing here in this place that life has brought you? We have to, we have to experience that in silence. I stand in fear of a God who can cast the winds to the four corners of the earth, who can shake the ground below us and press the fire. But I stand in awe of an almighty God who whispers love and encouragement in the ears of His creatures. Is it any wonder in life's chaos and the things that we have that goes on in our world that we cannot hear that still voice of the Lord. We need to spend that time in silence and prayer. So how do we know what God wants? Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we, we don't even know what to pray for. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 26 that the Holy Spirit will in, intercede for us with groans that words cannot express. Sometimes we don't know exactly what it is that God is doing in our life. And sometimes we need that intercession. Elijah was burned out and depressed, working zealously, but missing God's glory. Purpose is the fulfillment of that obedience. And the covenant between Israel and God was that, the, was that they would worship the Lord alone and that they would influence the world with that, with that covenant, so that by Israel, by that faithfulness, a Savior would come. And we, we get so preoccupied, just as Israel got preoccupied with the land and its inhabitants, with its Jezebels and its idols, that we forget what that purpose is. And we forget that. The same can happen in, in our lives and in the life of a church. We can spend so much time on the means that we forget the end, which is to glorify God. Lead people? Prophesy? Elijah could not reconcile himself with man or himself until he reconciled himself with God. We find it here in that latter part where he reconciles himself with God. Our hearts should be zealous for obedience to God, seeking God in prayer. And that is, where, that is where we should be seeking God. Now, here I get to testify to you, 
to what God has done in my life. Here I get to tell you how great a God we have. Because you see, for, th for three years I have prayed for revival. And little did I know that what God was working in me was an awakening. I tell you this because in January of this year, on a particular day, I had struggled and I had looked for God. On this particular day, you know, January is not my favorite time of year. It's cold, it's dreary, it's wet. I just don't enjoy winter time. Some do, but we don't have snow, so I don't like, you know, no snow skiing or anything like that, but I don't like this time of year. And so, so much of the way that I was feeling that I just kind of assumed, well, maybe it's the weather. You know, when this time of year, when it gets dark early, you know, in January, and it's cold and it's damp, and so my day, my, my spirit on this particular day was rather low. And as the day went along, because what I do in my work is, is I'm kind of the bad guy. I get to tell people no uh, an awful lot. No, you can't do that. No, we don't have money in the budget for that. No, you're violating policy. So all of those things that, that I get to do at work is so many times uh, a negative thing. And, and so as this particular day wore along, it got, it got worse. A lot of tough decisions, a lot of experiences. And so on this particular day, as I felt low and, and, and as this fog entered my head, as this darkness surrounded my spirit, I said, Lord, if I can just make it home, if I can get home, I can, I can get on some jogging clothes and I can, I can get out and I can run. Because maybe if I get out and exercise and get my blood, blood pumping, maybe my head will clear up. So I get out there and I do. I change clothes, get home, and out the door I go. I go out and I run to the other end of the farm because my idea is maybe if I punish this body enough, my head will clear up, my mind will I'll take my mind off of my mind. And so as I, as I ran, I, 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 then I got on a bike and I rode and I rode trying to, trying to, uh, to really punish this body. And so as a late afternoon, I seen the sun sinking below the trees. I was experiencing fatigue. I was tired. So I go home and I kick back and things wasn't much better. My head wasn't clear because it doesn't matter what we do in life. It doesn't matter the physical things that we do for our body. It is the spiritual things that God has to take care of. And on this particular day, as I went out, I came back in feeling no better. I remember one of the last things that I said out loud because again, you know, there was such fog, such there. But I remember one of the last things I said was, I'm tired of being the bad guy. I'm tired of being, I felt like Elijah. I'm tired of being the bad guy. I'm the bad guy at work, I'm the bad guy at home, I'm tired of it. So I go to the only place of quiet in a house of five, which is the bedroom, and I paced the floor. And I said, Lord, whatever this 
is that is bothering me, this spiritual warfare that's going on because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And whatever this spiritual warfare that's going on, Lord, I pray that you would take and put a hedge of protection around me and around my family because I don't know what's going on here. I sat down and with my, hand in, with my head in my hands, the only other thing that came to mind was Romans 8, 26. When we don't know what to pray for, when we don't understand what it is, the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. That's the only thing I could do. That's the only thing I know to do. Because I didn't have the words, I didn't have what it took to feel the presence of God. After a period of time, after some time had passed, it was as if my heart had been opened surgically and certain sins came to pour forth out of my heart. You're wondering what those sins are. See, that's another good thing about me. I get to, I get to come up here. If the preacher was up here fixed to confess sins, everybody would perk up. they say, uh-oh. All of my sins that I'm going to tell you about were sins of my heart. And they are sins that weave their way into each of our hearts. The first thing that came to my, that came to my thoughts that I was convicted of first and foremost was that which every man struggles with and has struggled with since the fall of man in the garden. And that is the sin of pride. You see, because ever since that time that man fell in the garden, he has added layers of protection around his heart. Because no longer does he ever want to be a fool like he was made out to be in the garden. So he adds a layer of pride for protection. No longer... Does he want to be seemingly weak, either mentally or physically? And so he adds another layer of protection, another layer of pride in his heart. And no longer does he want to appear as fallible. And so he puts himself on the throne of his heart in place of God. And so there's another layer of pride. And those things have to be dealt with. Gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, pride cometh before the fall. And if you have pride in your heart and it has not been dealt with, you better pull it out, you better name it, and you better get rid of it. The next thing that, that came out of my heart was arrogance. I was spiritually complacent. And I'll tell you how arrogant that can be. When I say, Lord, you know, I'm happy with where I am. I sit on the front row every Sunday. I'm a, I'm a deacon. I teach Sunday school. Lord, how possibly, how possibly could you grow my faith any more than where I'm at? How arrogant can that be? And you know, ever since God has taken my faith and it has stretched it in many ways, in these three years of my prayer life, I have seen God stretch my faith in places and in ways that I never thought of. If you are complacent in your faith, you are exactly where Satan wants you to be because you are not a threat to him. I think of selfishness. That selfishness came out of my heart. Selfishness doesn't have to be a great big thing. It can be a small grain 
tucked away into the deepest parts of the heart. You know, when we say, well, well look what I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving money to this group and to this church, and, and why, why, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm leading this Bible study, and my Lord, I'm you know, doing all these things. And somewhere deep down in the bottom of your heart where that grain of selfishness is, says, you know what, I'd just like to be recognized just a little bit. I'd like for somebody to say, good job. When we sit there and say that we are working for God, when indeed what we have is a grain of selfishness, just one is all it takes that says that, you know what, I'd just like to be recognized. Are we truly doing it for God or are we doing it for ourselves? judgmentalness. You know, I'm a believer that Jesus, that, that the Holy Spirit gives every believer in Jesus Christ tools and equips them with an ability to do that which it needs to be done in God's kingdom. And, and I'm a believer that what I had learned long ago was, was one of the gifts that God had given me was that ability, uh, that gift of discernment. When I can look in God's Word and I can see truth and I can see deception that Satan throws at us and I can, I have, you know, God's given me a gift to love that and to desire more truth and more wisdom so that I may discern for things in my life. But you know what Satan did is he took that gift and he will do this. He'll take your gifts, your spiritual gifts and he'll wad them up and rewrap them into something so much different. And what he did with my gift was he wadded it up and rewrapped it and put it, a name on it, and it was called judgmentalness. Judgmentalness. You see, Satan permitted me. He said, you know what? You need a little judgmentalness with that discernment there, Joe. He said, yeah, you know, you've you got to be able to tell uh, who's truly spiritual and who truly ain't and who is worth your time and who is not. And so as we go through life, how many times have we been in Walmart and looked at somebody and thought to ourselves, they're not worth my time. How many times have we thought, you know what, I shared the word of God with him one time, he rejected it, he rejected it, and he's just going to die and go to hell. And I'm sorry, there ain't nothing I can do about it because we become judgmental in our attitudes and in our ways of dealing with other people, that judgmentalness. And then, of course, there's misplaced passions. You know, I love football. I love politics. And I could talk and opine for hours about crime and punishment. I pretty much got an opinion on most everything. <laughs> That's the only amen I got. But you know, those things of which I was the most passionate about are not those things which God are passionate about. Those things which I would remember that I have stood and, and, and argued for hours about who a best candidate might be for something or, or who, who may be the best football player, the best team. Those things that I was so most passionate about were not the things that God is passionate about. And as believers, we have a responsibility to adopt that which God is passionate about. My misplaced passions. And then a doubt of provision. You know, every one of us in here sometime or another doubted what it exactly it is that God can do in our lives 
and that doubt of God's provision. You know, during this time that I, that I had, that, I, that as I prayed and these sins, they, they came to, to, to be pulled out of me. You know, it was not a time of weeping. I wept many times as a child and understanding and, and along the way we weep. We think about when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, what He did for us. But you know, the neat thing about it is is that as a believer and when you're saved, God's already forgiven those sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is sins that you committed. That is sins that you are committing and those that you will commit. I am forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when I think of these things that I took, these sins that I took that Satan had given me those threads, I took them and I wove them into the character of my life and of my heart. And they were just as much a part of me as anything. In fact, you know, you could almost hear people say as I walked away from one of my passionate arguments of something, well, that's just Joe. <laughs> that's, that's just Joe. But we, we think about that. And then I remember that what it says, Luke 7, 47. Luke 7, 47, when Jesus says, He who has been forgiven little loves little. The spiritual warfare that went on in my life on that particular day was one that the Holy Spirit was interceding for because I had for so long forgotten what I was forgiven for and therefore the love in my life was not where it should have been. You know, when we have a judgmental attitude, it prevents our ministry. We cannot love because... We have forgotten the forgiveness and forgotten forgiveness because we do not hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us in our daily lives. I ask you again, what are you doing here? You know, some, some people are here because they need that forgiveness. Some people need to remember how much they have been forgiven for. Wow, look what God has done for me. You know, we think about how much we are forgiven. And now that I can remember how much I've been forgiven, guess what? Now I can love more. As Christians, we know that mystery. That it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And if the Holy Spirit calls, you must respond. Christ called men publicly. And as a public profession of faith is absolutely necessary, as we identify with Christ and His bride, the church. And that by baptism in yon waters, not to be saved, but because you are saved, that you begin that journey along life's path to that process we know as sanctification. And thereby able to answer that question, of why are you here? There are a lot of people here that may be dealing with desperation and depression and a sense of hopelessness because sin is choking out that light of their heart. And whether you're born again in your faith or you do not know Jesus as your Savior, there is hope, there is forgiveness, 
And there is much to love. Three years ago, I began to pray for revival for you. And little did I know that the awakening that God was preparing in my heart. But before we can revive this country that we so much love, before we can revive this church, we must be revived. As we begin this time of response, we invite you to come. The altar is open. There will be counselors in the back. As you come, as, as, you, as you take this time to, to think about what it is that you are be, to be obedient about, as we, as we remember that there is such a time that we need to sit still and just be quiet and listen to what the Holy Spirit has for us. You know, when I look at this and I think about, you know what? The story of Elijah did not end here. He went on to mentor and, and, to, and to have a successor named Elisha. And in 2 Kings it records that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, escorted by chariots of fire. What a life of obedience to God and Elijah's purpose fulfilled. You come as you are, are led at this time.